Well, I would invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 23, you can certainly follow the insert found in your bulletin. Just to give you a bit of a heads up, this week we will, um, or excuse me, after this week we will be taking a break from our study of uh, the book of Acts for at least a month as we move uh, towards, well, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, Resurrection Sunday. And, uh, and so uh, we'll take a break for the month of April, and then Lord willing, we'll wrap this study up uh, near the end, or excuse me, near the beginning of the summer. This study has been for us, I think, a good reminder that among other things, God has given us stories. Right? He hasn't given us textbooks. He hasn't given us a manual, but He's given us poems and letters, and in the case of the book of Acts, a book of history. A book of historical stories. Of course, if I, as I've said over and over again, it's, it's history that is intended to not simply inform you so that you can be aware of what went on in the first century church, but so that you can be transformed as God's Spirit takes these truths and applies them to your life. We turn this morning to a, a, another large chunk of the book of Acts. I didn't see any way for us to easily break it up. Hopefully, uh, especially in light of our time, it's not a large sermon that follows the large chunk. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Paul is still in chains. For those of you uh, who maybe weren't here last week, we've been following the Apostle Paul, and he is still in chains in Jerusalem, hoping to get to Rome. But as we said last week, he is being held by the Romans simply because they're trying to get to the bottom of why he is such a lightning rod. Why he is such a disturber of the peace. And of course, we would say he is not the disturber of the peace. It's those around him. He's faced the masses. He's stood before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Now he's headed to the Roman governor of this region, a man by the name of Felix, to make the third of what will be five defenses of the Gospel that Paul is forced to make as he journeys to Rome. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, um, with Paul still in the hands of the Romans, headed to Felix the governor, verse 25 of verse 23. Excuse me, of chapter 23. Verse 25 of chapter 23. And he, that is... Claudius Lysias, the uh, commander who has, who has Paul in his charge. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on that day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. 
when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the governor, delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he was asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing upon when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found that this man is a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The, joy, the Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs." After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. There was a movie that came out last year. Some of you may have seen it. It was a movie that was entitled The Edge of Tomorrow. The Edge of Tomorrow. And the tagline on this movie was Live, Die, Repeat. 
It was a story of a futuristic American soldier played by Tom Cruise who, in a futuristic world that was threatened by alien invasion, he keeps waking up on the same day. Over and over again, after getting killed in battle, he wakes up in the same place on the same exact day. As you might imagine, as this character goes through this experience, which I'm not going to explain why he's going through it, but it's incredibly discouraging and frustrating for him until he recognizes that he can use this to his advantage, that he can grow, that he can learn from this each day that he lives, despite his waiting. So we come to this story, this next saga in the life of the Apostle Paul. He's not dying, but I would suspect that Paul is fighting some discouragement. He's trapped, I don't know, in his own sort of time loop, I think. Another defense. More waiting. I mean, Paul was human. He must have wrestled in some way with with the futility of it all. No no freedom, no visible fruit to speak of since he stepped foot in Jerusalem. He must be crying out to the Lord, why am I waiting here? Why is this going on? Maybe Paul had a better perspective about it all. I certainly can make my own judgments about his predicament and think about how I would respond if I were in his shoes. I mean, we look at Paul and we say, surely, God, it would be better for Paul to be out and about in the ancient world like he was, planting churches and encouraging the people of God and not stuck in Roman chains, giving defenses over and over again to no avail. You see, that gets at the very thing that I think this passage reminds us of and encourages us in. We think we know better than God, but we don't. There are two simple encouragements that guide us this morning as we walk through what I know was a lengthy passage. Thanks for bearing with me. Two encouragements guide us as we walk through these verses. And the first one is this. Waiting on God is never a waste of time. Waiting on God is never a waste of time. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like you are in your own little version of a time loop? Right? Nothing is changing. But you long for it to. Instead, every day goes by and, gosh, this day feels much like yesterday felt at least in regards to whatever that thing is that you desperately want to change. God speaks to us this morning through the the experience of the Apostle Paul, and he reminds us that he is God and that we are not. That he is good and that we are not. There's a lot going on in this passage. Let me explain it and try to to sum it up for you It begins in typical political style with some good political schmoozing that goes on. 
As Claudius Lysias writes this letter to Felix, he paints what has gone on with Paul in these first verses that we read. And specifically his involvement of it all in in the rosiest of colors, right? He doesn't mention that he stumbled upon Paul's Roman citizenship as he was about to flog the mess out of him. He doesn't mention that the trip to the council backfired and he had to pull Paul out of there as they were clawing at him and arguing over the resurrection. No, it's all painted so rosy, like everything's in control. Here's this man. And then we're introduced to this Jewish lawyer, essentially, Tertullus. He's a professional orator. And he has been hired by the Jews to come and to lay the case upon Paul in front of the Roman authorities. But of course, he begins in in wonderful political style, stroking this man Felix, who isn't worthy of any praise. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge your reforms with gratitude. We'll get to Felix in a moment, but... What are the charges that are against Paul? So here we got it. We finally got an official trial of sorts. No more mobs, no more yelling of the Sanhedrin. We've got an official trial. And Tertullus makes three charges against the Apostle Paul. Number one, Paul is a plague. This man is a plague, he says. He stirs up riots, and if you let him go, he will do the same thing. And he will threaten the peace of Rome. He will threaten the order of the empire. Number two, Paul is a ringleader in this sect of the Nazarenes. That's his second charge before Felix. And then number three, Paul is sacrilegious. Paul tried to profane the temple, our temple, and he would have if we hadn't have stopped him. And this was the accusation of the mob way back in chapter 21. You might have remembered this. It must have taken every ounce of Paul's self-control to not respond to Tertullus as he was going through these charges. Because they're, they're wrong. The substance of the charges is all wrong. But as we looked at last week, Paul had learned in some way, he had learned from his weakness. So he kept his mouth shut and he waited until he was called upon, submitting to the authorities Paul begins his defense of these charges in chapter 24, verse 10. And his defense contains none of the flattery of Felix that the other two men felt compelled to give. Just the facts about this governor. And Paul says, as to charge number one, that I'm a plague who stirs up riots, he says, I've only been in town for 12 days. You guys realize that? I've only been in town for 12 days, and five of those days I was in prison. So you're telling me that in a week I could create so much havoc that would warrant me being dragged before this justice, this ruling authority, fearing for my life? No, Paul says. It's the Jews, not me, that's, that's instigating trouble that is creating disorder. As to charge number two, he essentially confesses, yes, I am a leader in this sect of the Nazarenes. It's actually the way we call it. 
It's the way of Jesus. And I am a leader in this way of Jesus. But know this, this way of Jesus that you want to label a sect, it's a completely legal religion. It's part of and finds its moorings in the Jewish religion that has long been tolerated by Rome. And so, yes, I am a leader in this movement, but that's not illegal. And then lastly, as to charge number three, Paul says, while it's true that I was in the temple, I was doing the opposite of what I'm accused of. I was in the temple to give offering. I was in the temple purified and ceremonial ceremonially clean. And so what they say is just a lie. See, Paul just dismantles every charge that Tertullus presents before the Roman authorities. And so we see this defense, we hear this defense, and we think, there are the facts. Case closed. Paul should be released. But what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Felix, the spineless politician that he is, he chooses chooses not to do the right thing, but the political thing. He keeps the Jews happy by not freeing the accused Paul. And he keeps Rome happy by keeping a social disturbance off the streets. Of course, the text says that Felix wasn't cruel to Paul. Gave him a lot of freedom. Let his friends come and visit But Paul still wasn't free. He still wasn't headed where he wanted to be headed. He wasn't gaining the fruit that he wanted to gain. Nothing had significantly changed. And the waiting continued for two years. Verse 27 says. Now, how Paul dealt with this season of waiting, Luke doesn't say, but one wonders what emotions Paul felt every time Felix called upon him to talk. Because he says he did that several occasions. Paul must have wondered, is is today the day where he's going to release me? Is today the day where I am going to be on my way? But instead, he waits. He waits. What I want us to see this morning in this passage, which again is more than simply history. It's more than just this is how Paul's life continued. What I want us to see is that yes, Paul is a prisoner of Felix. Yes, Paul is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. But ultimately, Paul is a prisoner of God. He's a prisoner of God. You see, Paul's experience prods us to remember that waiting, waiting is a constant in the life of faith. It just is. God often doesn't give us all the facts. He doesn't give us the timetable. He doesn't give us the factors involved in why we are experiencing a certain thing. He just gives us Himself. And your Bibles are full of this. The poets of old cried out, Psalm 27, 13 and 14, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 1, a psalm many of you know, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and He heard my cry. 
It's not just the poets, it's the prophets as well. Isaiah 26.8 In the paths of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Isaiah 40.31 Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And then finally, Isaiah 64.4 From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. The act of waiting is a constant in the life of faith. And as we move into the New Testament, it gets that much more vivid. One of the most striking stories, I think, of waiting in the New Testament is found in John 11. And you don't have to turn there, but it's a familiar story to many of you. John 11, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is ministering in another city, and Martha comes. Now Jesus loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lazarus is Jesus' friend. He loves this family. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. His friend is ill. He's far away. He stays longer. Lazarus, of course, dies. Jesus finally makes his way to Martha and Mary. And we read in chapter 11, verse 21 of John, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus comforts her. He himself weeps over his friend's death. And then in verse 43, in dramatic fashion, he walks to the tomb where Lazarus lies and he cries out, Lazarus, come out. Of course, his friend comes out of the grave, alive. It's an incredible story because it shows us just in vivid color that Jesus knew what He was doing. He made them wait. In pain? Yes. In grief? Yes. Was that waiting hard? Yes. Were they confused? Yes. But what did that waiting accomplish? It accomplished incredible glory for God. And for these people, joy that they could not have imagined they would ever experience. And it just shows us again that waiting on God is never a waste of time. I love what one author says about this passage. He says, when Jesus makes a trusting saint wait in pain, His reasons are only love. God only ordains His child's deep disappointment and profound suffering in order to give him or her far greater joy in the glory He is preparing to reveal. What a promise. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God is God and that God is love and that God is good? 
You see, waiting is an invitation for us to take our eyes off of ourselves, take our eyes off our circumstances, and reorient them to the Lord. David models this for us. We don't have time to look at it this morning. But I encourage you, Psalm 37. Read Psalm 37 this week. And look at how David counsels his own heart in his waiting. See, I know that some of you here this morning, you have been waiting for a long time. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're waiting for family members to come or to return to the Lord and to the promises that are theirs. Maybe you are waiting to grow your family. Maybe you're waiting for a clean bill of health. You're waiting for a change because something needs to happen. And the Lord reminds you this morning through the life of the Apostle Paul that God hasn't forgotten you. But that waiting on God is never a waste of time. In His time, He will bring glory to His name. And He will work for your good. So strive to reorient yourselves and trust in Him. We don't always see, as Mary and Martha did, the reason for the waiting. They saw a couple days later. But Paul didn't see the reason either. But one thing he did see is this. In all of his gospel proclamation all over the world, he had never had the opportunity to testify before such an authority. Here he is before a Roman governor, and what is he doing? He is proclaiming the gospel. And that brings us to the last thing I want us to look at just for a couple minutes. And it's this. Not just is waiting on God never a waste of time, but don't wait on God because there's no time to waste. Don't wait on God because there's no time to waste. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about missed opportunities. Missed opportunities that eat on us in so many ways. You see, Felix, this corrupt governor, this ruthless ruler of Rome, and his wife, Drusilla, who was this teenage bride that he had stolen from another king in Syria, They have the mouthpiece of the first century, the mouthpiece of the good news in their custody. And Luke records for us that Paul has the opportunity to speak to to the Lord Jesus on more than one occasion. He speaks of righteousness. He speaks of self-control. He speaks of the coming judgment. And Felix, Felix shows glimpses of understanding. Maybe something's happening there. But what does he ultimately say? He says what so many in our world say later. When I get an opportunity, later. And so just like Jesus foretold, the cares of the world choke out the world because the illusion is that there will always be another day. There will always be another day to seek the Lord. Paul will write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is the day of salvation. So ironically, we've been talking about waiting on God, and that's exactly what God is doing. 
He is waiting for the sake of those who don't know Him. Right? 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Felix. Whether these seeds that Paul planted ever blossomed and grew into faith. Certainly hope they did. We don't know. We won't know. But what we do know is that God was offering Himself. And in Felix's procrastination, he was saying, now, today is the day of salvation. And so this is a passage that speaks to those in this room who are like Felix, who don't know the Lord Jesus. And the message to you is don't wait to know Him. There may not be a tomorrow. Seek Him today. Seek Him now. And this is a message for those like Paul who know and love Jesus. The encouragement to you is to wait patiently on your God. Knowing that He knows what He's doing and that you can trust Him. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for these wonderful promises that are declared to our hearts this morning by way of Your Spirit and by way of Your Word. Lord, I pray that they might be an encouragement for those who know and love You and yet are confused and frustrated at what You're doing with them. Lord, may they be reminded again of who You are. For those who are here this morning who may have never bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. They're living for themselves. They've never repented of their sin and cried out of their need for a Savior. Father, I pray that they would not wait another day. They would seize today and make this the day of their salvation and a new beginning for them in their lives. Oh, Father, do these things, we pray, for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.